All right. Well, by the way, great worship this morning. You know, I'm, I'm uh, something to pray for uh, when you're thinking about it is uh, I was just telling them in the back uh, about a year ago, I started to notice that I was becoming a little bit pitchy and singing. And I've been singing for over 20 years now. And, and uh, I mean, you know, I don't think I'm the best singer out there, but I can carry a tune and uh, uh, I've enjoyed singing. I've, I've, I've created a lot of songs like writing, like a lot of those things. But uh, I started noticing I was getting pitchy about a year ago. And then in the last four or five months, many of you probably noticed like I can't sing as much. Like I am losing my voice. And in the past probably two months, by the time I get to an end of a day, I'm struggling to have a voice every day. And so I'm, I decided yesterday as I was getting to the end of yesterday, and I was like, I'm losing my voice by the end of the day. And I, I mean, I know I talk a lot, okay? Uh, but, it, you know, there are people who talk a lot too professionally, and they've got their voice, okay? So, like, listen, I, there, I shouldn't lose my voice by the end of the day. Uh, and I did at first. I thought, man, okay, I'm getting older. Maybe that's just, but, like, dude, there's people that are way older than me that sing awesome. And I want. I would like to continue singing, uh, so I, I'm going to make an appointment, I think, uh, which I've kind of like put off, but I think I'm going to make an appointment to have this looked at, and, and so I can continue doing what God's called me to do. Uh, so be, be praying for me in that area. Uh, I want to praise and I want to worship the Lord, and I'm doing the best I can, uh, but joy is really picking up the slack right now, and I'm appreciating it. And you know what, though? I will tell you this is it is awesome to not be able to sing and just enjoy you singing. And to be able to hear all of you is, is awesome, right? I mean, it really, really is. It's always my favorite. Uh, come on, I, I'm with the Lord. I think once you've come to love, like, there's nothing like uh, loving what somebody else loves and really seeing what somebody else loves about something. You know, um, just bringing up, for instance, you know, uh, I, I love getting to to know you and the things you love because I end up trying to look at those. Maybe that's something I would like. And, and I remember when me and Jared first started hanging out, you know, I never rode a bike. I didn't even look like a guy who rides a bike, a bicycle. Right. And, uh, and, you know, just in getting to know him, this is what he loved. Like, well, man, he looks like he's having so much fun on it. I got to try it. Right. And I would, be, I came to enjoy a lot of it. Right. But I like, like that's, there's something about like, Loving what your friends love, you know, and how you learn to love things like that, right? Well, make no mistake, if you hang around Jesus enough, there's no way you can hate the church. Man, I mean, I mean it's just, I always say, like, you can't, you can't like a, a, when it comes to having friends, especially guys, I always say, man, I, I can't like the man if I don't like his wife. Just can't. That doesn't work right. You can't be friends with one and not like his spouse. Because no matter what, there's a piece of him that sees his spouse in a way that, so like you can't like dislike someone because their spouse, it just doesn't work for me like that. Like I have to love you both and I don't see it as one or the other. I see you as, a, as one, right? Well, Jesus and the church are one. They might not act like it. I know that he acts a whole lot better than she does. I know that, but he loves her. He sees something in her. And by the way, if you hang out with him long enough, you'll see it too. You'll, you know what you start seeing? The beauty and brokenness. You start seeing the beauty in the people who don't have it all together, who are messed up, who do things just out of sheer ignorance, not because they're prideful, you know, and you start to have forgiveness in your heart. 
and grace in your heart. And that just makes you fall in love with the church. And I'm going to tell you, just, just like he does, just like you already know, right? If Briley comes out here and sings for us a song, how many of you going to stand up, give an ovation, and clap? <laughs> now, you think she's going to be on key? Come on. She, I would love to think she's going to be a prodigy in that area, right? Pretty good chance it's not going to be. But you know who's going to stand up in ovation? Who probably is not even going to hear it because I'll be blinded by love? I will. I know some parents over here that will. Right? We're going to applaud. What do you think Jesus does when you sing? I don't care how bad you sing or how good you sing. Jesus applauds everybody equally. He does, man. You're his kid. He loves you. He loves you. So when you sing loud, I promise you, there's not enough instruments that are ever going to sound as good as your voices. Right? We made the instruments. God made you. Which one do you think sounds better? Man, God loves you. Well, hey, this past Wednesday, I meant what I said when I spoke about being excited for the journey that God's uh, placed us all on, the call to return. I mean, I got really excited. I know. I kept talking forever. But by now, I, you know, I know most of us have had a chance to read the first chapter of Francis Chan's book, Letters to the Church. And one of my favorite lines is, if you, if you really know like why I'm excited, this is one of my favorite lines out of that first chapter. He said, in writing this book, I hope to encourage the wanderers to return. Man, we sound like kindred hearts now, right? It's for the same reason that we begin this whole thing, right? This whole church, this whole fellowship. Not to be different, right? Not to, not to criticize, right? But to re-explore the old ways and return to a really a more biblical approach uh, to becoming what Jesus wanted us to be, right? What he really dreamed for us to be. A righteous movement, right, that moves in his power and authority, right? So that we can say we're ecclesia, right? We are the church that moves within his authority. We're the people who move within his power. There is no church wall. There's no buildings that contain us, right? There is no. There is only one place that contains us. God calls it his footstool. We call it the earth, right? That's the only place, right? Everywhere we go, the church is. I love this. I love this. We move with him as he moves, right? And right now, we are like Moses in the book of Exodus, right? We're on our own exodus. We're on our own journey. We're also journeying down a path we've never been before, right? We don't know what the old ways were like. We were born in this way. We don't know what it's like. So this is kind of an exploration for us. It's new to us, but it's not new at all, is it, right? But this is, this is what we're going through and, and, and what can be, and this is the things that excite me. I really feel like we're like we're on the ground floor of this. You know how like you know how many people want to be on the ground floor of a movement? We're on the ground floor of a movement. Make no mistake about it. My wife was excited about a sermon this past week from uh, Louis Giglio, and one of the things he was saying is pretty much he was saying was how we can't keep doing the same things. Like we can't keep going about it the same way. We've seen it's not doing anything. Like I've been waiting for people to jump on that train for a while. But I'm so glad they're finally getting there. They're saying the same thing I have. Like with all our technology and with all our money, with all our great preaching and great music, how come we're still not in revival? It, could it be that the way we're doing things is all wrong? Could it be that we've been walking in a way? It's not, not that we're not, well, we're seeing salvations. Listen, do not mistake success for the grace of God. Warning, Christians, do not mistake success for the grace of God. Bible says even the wicked prosper. Do not mistake prosperity for the will of God. This is a good journey. It's a good journey to be on. And I'm excited every day we get to wake up and come together and join together and be brothers and sisters in Christ where we get to move forward. 
And this is our opportunity today. It's probably one of the best days for me to be able to preach on Exodus. I, I feel like we came across this chapter in chapter 18 of Exodus. If you want to go there now, you can. This is where we're going to be today. This is such a good chapter, and I will probably break away from my notes a whole bunch. Hopefully, I won't keep us here too long. We'll be in chapter 18. And while you're there, listen, we, I'll kind of go over some things. We've left Egypt. Right? We're in the wilderness following the Israelites in, this, in their struggle to have faith in the very God that delivered them in such a way that you'd think it'd be easy to believe in God, but hey, they're, they're human. This allows us to understand them because we can all definitely relate to this. God does miracle after miracle in many of our lives, but in every circumstance that life presents us, it's always a challenge to believe that God will see us through it. Amen? Isn't that weird? No matter how many times, we're like, I don't know how the children of Israel don't get it. They saw all these plagues and stuff, and God raised the Red Sea, and then they get on the other side, and they're begging to go back to Egypt. And I'm always like, whoa, 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 slow down. How many times has God done a miracle for you, and you still doubt God? Let's remind ourselves that we're just human. It's easy to armchair quarterback other people, right? But the truth is, we're just people. We make mistakes. We struggle all our own struggles, right? I don't care how many times God supernaturally just shows up in our life, we still struggle to believe that he'll do it again. A lot of the times we believe, or we struggle to believe, is because he doesn't do it the same way twice. C.S. Lewis got that right in the books on Narnia. God never moves hardly the same way twice. Rarely. I mean, think about it. For, for, if you think about it, they're slaves to Egypt, God, the Israelites, that God delivers them. Egypt pursues them. They think they're dead even after witnessing all these plagues, right? He opens the sea. They get on the other side. Food and water becomes the struggle. And by the way, what did we say? They were legit struggles. They went three days without water. Uh, you go without three days without water and see if you don't cry. Let's see you believe in God after three days with no water. I can tell you with three days of no food, I'm struggling to believe in God. Come on. That's just part of life, right? But God deals with it, right? He sends manna. And quail, y'all love that sermon. You got free Chick-fil-A cards that day because, hello, bread and chicken, chicken sandwiches. That's a no-brainer, right? <laughs> they get thirsty, and there's a lack of water, and twice God leads them to water, even making it appear from the rocks. How many of y'all have done that? i never done that, by the way. When I was a kid, I tried that switch thing. didn't work for me. You know, maybe I didn't dig deep enough, <laughs> right? But they doubt, and yet God supplies and it's this vicious cycle of lack of faith in contrast to God's perfect faithfulness. It's basically our life. Basically our life. So now we find them, after food and water's been taken care of, back to like, you know, they're in their daily squabbles of everyday life, of living together. Right? You, remember, you have those daily squabbles where you live together and your best friends and hate each other on the same day. Right? Like that's called love, by the way. Right? It's just straight up love. Uh, it's called family. Families fight. That's a part of life. And how you fight and how you deal with things really determines your future. It's, it, man, this is a good one. This, this is like the chapter I've been waiting on, it feels like. Uh, and so we'll just begin Exodus 18, uh, 1 through 6. Jethro, I'm, I'm going to read out of the ESV on this one. Jethro, the, pe- the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel's people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of 
the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land in the, in the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and wife uh, to Moses uh, and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons are with her. We'll stop right there. Let's pray real quick before we get going any farther. Father, I, I just, I, I want to present this word before you, Lord. I, I feel like it's a word from you. But now I give it back to you, God. Lord, I can never open the eyes or the ears or the heart like you can. So, Father, I pray as we speak your word out today, God, and we reveal the truth within it, Lord, that it be your truth for which you get all the glory, God. Lord, that you would use it to grow and nurture us like manna and quail. Lord, that it would become the very thing that sustains us and helps sustain others. God, use it in your ministry, in your church, for your glory. In Jesus' name. The whole church says amen. amen. So, to be honest, when I read this, it's one of the few times we see the real humanness of Moses. Man, he's human, right? It's a family reunion after a long, tough time without his wife and kids. Seriously, I mean, there's nothing like seeing your family or just having your family next to you during a tough time. And if you don't think this is a tough time for Moses, I mean, remember the last time, how long am I going to deal with these complainers nonstop, right? Um, the great thing about trials is when family's around is that it shoves the attention off each other and you end up rallying together to face whatever uh, the hardship is. And this is really when families grow stronger. When Joy and I first moved here, everything we knew was back in Terrell. Everything we knew. And here came this very foreignness. You know, we lived on the same block as my sister-in-law. All of my kids were, my kids were homeschooled. Rachel and Reagan were homeschooled. Reese was just being born. Um, my sister-in-law lived five houses down with her four kids all homeschooled. My other two sister-in-laws within a couple of miles, their kids were homeschooled and I had a swim pool. What do you think my house was like every day? <laughs> every day they had all the family over. Their friends were their cousins. That's who they knew. They were, we were a homeschooled bunch and, and they all knew their cousins and their cousins were there every single day. Now I got to look at my two girls and my wife who for the last decade we spent living around family and go, I'm going to move us to someplace I've never even been and I'm going to take our kids and uproot them and put them into a public school for which they've never seen, right? And I'm going to move them out here because God says to, I've heard a voice come from heaven. That's not easy. And then we were going to go from our like 2,000 square foot home. And then the pastor calls us, I've got you a perfect place. So I gather my furniture in the trailers. They, like un they, they came up. The church did it in one day, brought like two trailers, put everything I owned in two trailers and moved me to a house that I had never seen. And it was 1,300 square foot. So I had half my house inside and half my house still sitting under the carport. That is how we moved. And man, was it hard in the beginning. We didn't know anybody. And when we walked in the door, we knew there was some work to be done because there were some things in the church that were just unhealthy as well. So not only was the ministry facing us going to be difficult, we'd never lived that close to each other before. I never lived that close to my kids. Our kids were like way on the other side of the house. And I have to live right next. I mean, like we're in a tiny little home where I could like see from one side to the next. 
And, and all the luxuries that we had were gone. And I'll tell you, my wife will tell you, best thing ever happened to us. We, were more, we became more of a family because we were right next to each other. We had to live on top of each other. They had to, these, these things we had to endure together. We had to put our kids in school, be very active to make sure the things that we had achieved through homeschool were going to keep those same achievements happening throughout the way. I think we did pretty good. But it took a lot of work, more work than we ever had to do before. And I can tell you the stress of my, my wife, man, you know, trying to keep a home and come to a new place and raise her kids and, and send her kids to someone else to let them teach and trust them. And, man, it was not easy for her. It was not easy. Plus, the, just the, the feeling of what she had teached them before was probably going to be inadequate. And she just felt so not confident in herself in that area. And, and it, it just was rough on her. But during that time, man, it has made us unbelievably tight as a family unit we went through ministry together one things we realized real quickly that we were never going to hide anything from our kids we were going to tell them the full extent of what was going on in the ministry at all times so by the time my kids are 13 and 14 they had no misconceptions about what ministry was or how people behaved or what was the right or wrong ways to act they knew who the good people were in ministry and they knew who the bad people were in ministry but I wanted them to see that because I wanted them to see how to live in ministry. But I'm telling you, one of the things that helped me not get so focused on the bad or the good or these things, right, was that I had my family there. And I had other things come up because my family was there. So it caused my mind to be distracted from things that may could have consumed me. So in one sense, you know, the reason I was able to endure is because I had my family there. My family was there to take some of that off. They presented their own stresses. Absolutely. Absolutely. But those stresses kept me from the other stresses. It's like, it's like they saved me from the, the whole thing. And, 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 and having my wife there, it was just it was incredible, right? Think about this. For Moses, it had been really long and this really unknown time. He, he, it was a walk by faith, right, to get to where he was at. He didn't know what God was all going to do. God didn't say, hey, listen, I'm going to do this many plagues. This is how it's going to work. You're going to go through the Red Sea. He was like taking it day by day. I'm just happy we didn't die today. I'm just happy we don't die this day. You know what I mean? He was taking it day by day, right? He wasn't prepared for it. He didn't even realize where it would lead any other than just the freedom of the Jews, right? Don't you love how God gives you the general plan? God will give you a word, and you're like, all right. Like Roy was talking about in his testimony, Ann had given him a word from God, and he was like, I don't know how that applies. We never know how God's word applies until it applies. That's just how it is. That's the walk of faith, right? He, he is literally blindly following God into the wilderness and just trusting daily for the Lord. That's what he's doing, right? So to see his wife has got to feel like a small reward. I mean, a helpmate to ease uh, the weight of this entire thing, right? I, I don't know much in life, but this one thing I've learned about love and the inspiration of having a spouse is that I feel pretty invincible with joy. It's just the truth. I do. Even from the beginning, I was willing to move to Washington State with her. Didn't never been there before in my life. I moved twice like an idiot. But I moved. I was in love, man. Because why? Because she was there. And if she was there, then I don't care what it takes to get there. I don't care that I've never driven 2,200 miles as a 22-year-old kid. I'm going to jump in a Penske with whatever little I have, and we're going. I don't care. Well, we ain't got a job. I'll figure it out. If she wants to go. That's where we're going. I'll figure it out. That's the adventure. If she'll go with me, I'll go on any adventure. I feel invincible around her, right? I was willing to quit my job and take a risk on God because she was going to support me and go with me. 
She was willing to come here and uproot our kids and leave all the luxurious stuff to enjoy that we had enjoyed, the, the job and all those things we enjoy because we knew God was calling us to something greater, right? I was willing to plant this church and risk failing because she would support me in planting it. She was encouraging me. She was cheerleading. You need to do this. What are we even waiting for? You know you're supposed to be in Marble Falls. Why are you taking 90 days to think about it? You don't need to think about it. It was the same way when I took this job. We looked out. We'd never been to Marble Falls. By the way, they sucker punch you by putting in you the Kenta. And, you know, you open the window, and every view is a lake view. And so you look out there, and you're like, oh, my gosh. And Joy's like, I know. Why did you tell them you're going to pray on it? There's nothing to pray about. This is where we're going to live. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right, right? Just her presence. And her support encourages me and inspires me to new heights. At the same time, it allows me to have this like next level comfort. Next level of comfort in the process, right? Uh, I was thinking when we were talk- thinking about this whole thing about his like just the, I was thinking about the sheer joy it must have been to be Moses and see his wife like, oh my gosh, my gosh. Just I mean that she'll walk through it with me just to have that person you know is by your side when everybody else is complaining about you. This is the one person that's not, right? Like you. You know, you got someone on your side. I was thinking about the movie The Impossible. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen that story. If you haven't, it's a great movie. Uh, it's a great movie. You're going to cry. Just get, get over that. If you're not a cry person, you probably don't have a soul. You need to work on that, <laughs> right? But it's the story of a family that endured separation due to a 30-foot uh, tsunami. I mean, true story. True story, right? Joy and I watched this together. It was yet yeah, both horrific, and yet it was like watching a miracle at the same time, right? The husband and wife were separated when the tsunami hit. Uh, the wife had the oldest son, uh, and the, the husband had the youngest two uh, sons, and they both thought each other were dead. And the wife is hurt really bad. And the son, who's like 10 or 12, right, has to like help her get to where she's got to get. And it's, she's really bad hurt, right? And, but, they both are thinking each other is dead because there are hundreds of people that are de- hundreds of people, maybe thousands that are dead because of this entire event. And then the whole story is really their experience of how they survive it. And, and I'm going to tell you, like the part where you cry, right, the part where you first realize it is when they finally end up at the end realizing like the oldest brother hears the youngest two brothers calling out because they see each other along the way and they see each other for the first time and all those brothers just hug and you're like oh just tears by that like I'm trying to find them back right now thinking about it and and then for the first time you know the 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 mom is in the hospital she's being treated best she can with what they have there and then the dad realizes okay my youngest two kids are alive and now I find out my wife is alive You can deal with a lot of things when you know your family's okay. When you know your spouse is going to be there, like I don't care how bad at times it can be, but when you know that they're there, you can deal with so much, so much. It's so interesting how the Bible paints marriage being the joining to becoming one, one that makes you stronger. Man, so much stronger. You are better with your spouse than you are away from them. Man, uh, even though the difficulties in the movie they had to face, it was easier because they had each other. They had each other, right? And if you're, if you're married, you already relate to that feeling you get when you both, that, that when you realize the other person is like that when they're there. It's amazing the strength we draw from each other in marriage. It's amazing, right? I mean, our spouse and our children, they're gifts from God. They are gifts from God. And I, I couldn't 
get through this chapter without first thinking about Jethro going, you know, I've heard about all these things Moses has done. And, and you know, he's the priest of Midian, by the way. And, and I don't know if you get the word priest, but I'm pretty sure that means he's holy and righteous. And, and here is a man who has been a leader Right, I was thinking about this with Jethro and the type of man he was that he could understand Moses in this moment. And he hears about all the things that Moses has done, but he's also a man who understands, hey, I know what it's like to lead a lot of people. I know what it's like to be uh, where you're taking chances and you're taking risks. By the way, Moses, remember when I took a risk on the murderer that was fleeing from Egypt that I allowed to marry to my daughter? How many of you in for that one? How many of you signed up for the man who like, is fleeing Egypt as a notorious murderer, and you're like, yeah, go ahead and marry my daughter. By the way, that's not what I dream for my kids, okay? But you know the great thing about God is God takes murderers and he makes them priests. I mean, Moses is a murderer. We know that, right? And when he meets his wife, he's on the run for murder. Jethro takes him in. And I think about that moment of like knowing the backstory of Moses and here's Jethro going, I'm going to give you a second chance. I understand what that you meant to do what's right, but that's not right. And, and I'm going to give you this second chance in life. And that second chance turned into this man who would one day hear the voice of God and go back and try to do something about it, even if it means leaving his family and his kids. And Jethro in this moment realizes, you know what Moses needs more than anything right now? He's facing so much difficulty. Yes, I've heard what's happened, but that means I also know where he's at. And if I know where he's at, that means I know what he needs. You know what he needs? He doesn't need Jethro. He needs his wife and kids there. You know who knows something like that? A man who knows it himself. A man who knows it himself. Exodus 18, 17 through 12. Let's keep moving. I'm telling you, there's like three good devotions out of this whole thing I could just preach. I mean, it's so good. 7 through 12. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to all the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrificed to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' uh, Moses's father-in-law before God. You know, the book of Revelations... It records uh, in the end that we shall overcome this life, this world, and even the enemy with the power of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. Isn't it interesting to see the power of our testimony there? Doesn't seem like that would be the case, right? But the story of how God saved me, along with the blood that actually saved me, is what really is going to help the world. It's what allowed me to overcome all the things that were against me, all the things that I'm fighting against, right? I was thinking about the effect it has on us and the effect that has on others. Moses just shares his testimony, and it sends Jethro into, like, overflowing joy. I mean, it's like bubbled out, really, right? I mean, this would cause uh, uh, Jethro to get to a point he can't contain it, right? He's like, you know what, man? We're partying. As soon as I hear this, we're throwing a party. Altar's getting built. We're sacrificing on it. 
and, and we're going we're gonna to praise the Lord, right? Immediately Jethro's leadership. Here's your wife and kids, Moses, because I know that you'll lead better with them. Secondly, as soon as I heard your testimony, we got to get excited about that, right? You haven't stopped long enough on this journey to celebrate what God's already done. It's time to stop for a second and celebrate. We're going to praise God. And you're going to find out how contagious it is, right? How contagious is it? It kind of leaks out, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, Aaron's like, oh, I went in on that, right? All the rest of the elders in Israel are like, dude, that sounds good to us. All right, man, fajitas. <laughs> Meet right off the altar. They join in, and it becomes this whole day of worship, right? And the lesson is simple. How we praise God, how we genuinely praise God is contagious, Right? 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 reads, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right? And listen, if this applies, who Peter's talking to is to the persecuted church. If it applies to the people who are being oppressed and being stomped down and being killed and murdered, how much more should it apply to us who get to rejoice and walk in the Lord every day? right? We, we, we literally are across the street from a company that decides not to have Sunday business because they want people to be worshiping the God. Man, this is worship, right? You know, we, 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 we live next to all these lakes, right? Have you ever seen a boat when it's docked? Right? And it's tied off. Yeah, of course you have. Like anytime there's like somebody comes through there, I know they always say no wake zone, but there's always wake. Okay? And the water moves and it ripples up, right? It moves the boat up, up and down, right? And it moves side to side, but you know it never leaves the dock. Why? Because it's tied off. Well, this is how it is with joy. This is how it is. Nobody can steal your joy. It's tied off. So listen, it gets moved around, it gets shoved around. But nobody can take it. It's tied to Christ, to the one who Peter said we've never seen. But we can see that it's there. You can't physically see what's holding me together, but inside me is the living Christ. And in him, my joy, my hope, my strength is found. Amen? Man, and this chapter just keeps getting better. Right? Look at verse 13 with me. I'm being the new living for this one. I just like the way it says it better. Since the next day, see what I was saying about it could be all little mini sermons. Like each one of them could be its own devotion. It's so good. The whole chapter is just oozing with good stuff, right? Exodus 18, 13 through 26, the next day, Moses took his seat to hear the people's dispute against each other. Who wants that job? Horrible job, right? They waited before him from morning till evening when Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people. He asked, what are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do this all alone while everyone stands around you morning till evening? Moses replied, because the people come to, to, to me to get a ruling from God. When a dispute arises, they come to me, and I'm the one who settles the case because the quarreling parties, or between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them instructions. This is not good, Moses Farlong exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out, and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now listen to me, and let me give you a word of advice, and may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing their disputes to him. Teach them God's degrees and give them his instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. But select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,150 and 10. They should always be available to solve the people's common disputes. 
But you have to bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures. And all these people will go home in peace. Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions. He chose capable men from all over Israel and appointed them as leaders over the people. He put them in charge of groups of 1,000, 150, and 10. And then these men were uh, always available to solve the people's common disputes. They brought the major cases to Moses, but they took care of the smaller matters themselves. We'll stop there. Man, there's so much good stuff there. So much good godly leadership. And you guys know, man, I'm a leadership nut. I love to talk leadership. I mean, I love it. I've been wanting to teach a leadership class during the week for a long time now. Maybe I'll one day do it. But I so bad love leadership, right? And Jethro just brings a ton of stuff to the table. He's so smart. Let's deal with the obvious. We'll just deal straight up with the obvious. And I'm just going to jump right into the leadership stuff. Leaders are not born half as much as they're made. Right? It's the truth, whether you agree with it or not. Leaders are not born. They're like one out of ten is a born leader. But nine out of ten are made. Leadership is driven mostly through experience, although you can learn a lot from advice if you're willing to actually do try out the advice. Right? But leaders aren't born half as much as they're made. In Jethro, we see where Moses has learned to lead. Jethro's wisdom in these matters are obvious before Moses. And here's where we see God's plan coming like to fruition. So God, listen, I mean, God takes Moses and he removes him from all that teaching of Egypt, right? He's smart, man. Prince of Egypt, raised in Pharaoh's house. He's not an idiot, right? But God removes him from there. You think, you're, you, think you know how to free the Jews. That didn't work out so good, did it? The one thing he learned from Egypt is the one thing Egypt knew, which was violence, huh? That's the whole thing they threatened them the entire time. They were killing babies, doing all kinds of crazy stuff, right? That's what he learned from Egypt, right? So God took Moses and he pulled him out of Egypt and he placed him in a place where he was unlearned. He don't know a lot about farming or sheep. Can't imagine the pharaohs like tending sheep all day, right? I mean, come on. But this, all of this, this murder, this whole thing, it all landed him in Jethro's house. And under Jethro, Moses learned how to work hard, right? Because Jethro was... Very wealthy. And he also learned how to be devout, both as a man of God and a family man. We know this because he heard God's voice when it was time to hear God's voice. Right? He listened to Jethro because he's witnessed and served under the leadership of Jethro as his son-in-law. Right? I love that right off the bat, he shows respect. By the way, Moses is like a God to a people at this point. I mean, they've come to, they don't go to God when they have complaints. They go to Moses. Right? So he's the mediator between man and God. Who else is called the mediator between man and God that you know of? Right? So Moses is almost in this moment, he's, he's like this. He's not the pre-incarnate Christ, but he's the example for what it's going to be like one day. One day there's going to be this mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ, so that you will be, be like a straight, straight shot to God. But for right now, this is what I'm implementing so that you can see one day I'm setting up this system that is going to be. There's some cool stuff that's happening here. Right, But I love the fact that here's a man who's leading millions of people who, by the way, has been following God pretty good all this entire time, who just threw a stick in the water to make it sweet, just hit a rock, made water come out, Right, is doing really good before the Lord. But as soon as Jethro walks in the house, what happens? He bows down. Praise God for his humility. I say Moses was a meek and humble individual. 
If you don't see it there, that's great leadership, by the way. That's a learned attribute. That's a learned attribute. Uh, he listens to Jethro, right? Some men never really find out who they are until the crisis arrives. And that's just how it is. Uh, this, this is Moses. You're finding out who he really is. I mean, there was no crisis out there in, in the wilderness when he lived out there. He was tending sheep until the, until the burning bush came. There was nothing really exciting going on for Moses' life. He found a wife. That was about the most exciting thing that went on in his life. Had a couple of kids. He's tending sheep. Life is good for Moses if he never does anything else. You think he's going to complain about his life? No. He didn't, he didn't go looking for the burning bush. The burning bush happened, and he listened. And he listened. That's a learned attribute, guys. When crisis came, Moses acted. And this is where we see the character of a man. You know, Winston Churchill, without a war, wasn't all that great of a leader. There were lots of people who complained about him. Did you know that? They, 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 they didn't like him. It was the war and how he processed decisions during those dark days that forged his name into history. How we act when the fire arrives in our life, how we behave when everything is against us, when we're feeling oppressed, when, when everything is just working wrong, how we act during that moment, that says more about who we are than anything else, right? And in this moment, we, we can trust Jethro, man. His wisdom is sound. It's no wonder Moses listened to him, right? Also, pretty much everything he said is still taught today. I mean, go to any leadership conference, and you're going to hear these same attributes. Still taught today, right? They are actually the things we practice here at Mosaic. Even now, even now, he gave us three little nuggets of spiritual wisdom. The first one is this. Leaders can't do everything by themselves. It's impossible, all right? Leaders can't do everything by themselves. At this point and with the current leadership platform that's in place, if Moses dies, they die in the desert. There ain't no more moving on. Nobody else talks to God but Moses. Can't afford that guy to die. If he dies, it's over. It's over, right? Jethro sees the folly in all of this, right? And he advises him to make other leaders. He wasn't looking for born leaders. Look at verse 20. Teach them God's decrees and give them instructions, right? How are we going to get more leaders, Jethro? Simple. We're going to make them. So bring you a group of guys in and start training these individuals, right? This is, your, this is what you can do, Moses. You don't have to bring all million of them in. Create you these guys they are going to lead over these thousands, these hundreds, these fifties, these tens. Bring these men in and begin to teach them, right? Teach them God's decrees. Teach them instructions. Train them up. Make disciples. Duplicate yourselves, right? By the way, if you have kids, that's already your call. Duplicate yourself. Make better people than you. It's just good, solid leadership. Listen, Jesus trained 12 men, right? You know their names. Because they will always be remembered as the founders of the church, right? And from those 12 men came men like Barnabas, men like Paul, men like Stephen, men like Philip, right? Who did Barnabas? Like we, we know of Barnabas, but who did Barnabas find? He was the talent scout that saw Paul, right? Hey, man, I found this guy. This guy's really good. Not even the apostles saw the, the genius in Paul. They're like, yeah, that's good. Take him to the house. You can teach him all you want, right? They don't even care. Like, we got there's bigger issues than just this one guy, right? We're seeing everybody get saved. What's one more? You know? I mean, we really just don't see the genius of that. But Barnabas is like, this guy, 
this guy, you know? And, 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 and then all of a sudden, here's Stephen and Philip, and these guys are awesome. Philip is a secondhand Christian. He heard it from the apostles, never really met Jesus, but Philip's being transported from place to place. When's the last time you heard of an apostle being transported? No. Stephen, man, becomes the first martyr, and he has an opportunity to shut his mouth and realize the situation that he's in, but no, that's the glory of a 20-year-old. They're so bullheaded, man, they just punch right through it, right? They're like, I don't care if I die, right? Praise God. Because it would set blaze, man. It would blaze a fire and a new path for the entire church, right? From Paul, Paul gives us Timothy and Titus and many more, right? Great men of God. Leadership, good leadership is passed down. By the way, bad leadership is also passed down. Get you a good leader. Get you somebody that you follow, man, and then follow them. And then if I were you, you need somebody that's following you. You need to be raising up people that are going to be Christ, Christ followers too. Right? And then, then you know what? Here's where it gets important, man. To be a good leader, you got to live that junk. Right? I don't know if you saw the scripture I was talking about the other day on Facebook, but I posted that one, one of my favorites we've talked about in here from Esther. That when, uh, um, I think it's Haman who's complaining about Mordecai and him. He goes like, he's like talking to the king. He goes, sire, there's these people that live separate from us. They got their own set of rules and everything. And he's complaining like, welcome to the Christians. By the way, if we're not being complained about, I kind of wonder how we're living. I get scared a lot of times when I see how a lot of people live these days, man. They say one thing and then they are another. Listen, man, Christianity and the Bible looked entirely different from the world. And when it doesn't look, when it looks like the world, this is where people get confused. They're like, well, yeah, how is that really Christianity? You talk one thing. Listen, people aren't dumb. I don't know why Christians get in the church and they think they can live one way and then and still serve the Bible, whether they're ignorant to the truth of the Bible or what. But it seems to me that more lost people understand the Bible better than saved people. Because they realize real quick when a person's not behaving in a way that they should. Because they know Jesus. They've heard everybody talk about how good he is, and then they're wondering why you're not that. If that's your aspiration and that's who you're looking to, why aren't you behaving in such a way that represents him? The world is not dumb. They will pull that on you quick as all get out. Right? The second lesson was this. Leaders need to be above reproach. In verse 21, Jethro makes obvious the type of men that should be leading. He says, select capable, honest men who fear God and who hate bribes. Right? This seems obvious. But just look at the type of men we vote for every year here in politics. Okay? You know, I was saying this morning, we were talking about, I, I go into work every morning just to say hi to everybody and and, and I know they're working first thing in the morning. It's right by my house. So I come in and just say hi. Good morning to everybody. And as we were talking about this morning about uh, some of the things we face at the window and what people will lie about is what we were talking about. And I was like, it's so amazing to me uh, how many people will lie over $10. Like, no, I don't have anybody else in my vehicle. Like, bro, it's just like 15 more bucks. Like, you were lying for $15. Which, by the way, which my next thought was this. Like, I have a whole lot more respect for the politician that's willing to lie for a million than the guy who's willing to lie for 15. Like, by, by the way, and that guy criticizes politicians, you just lied for 15 bucks. 15 bucks. At least they're lying for 100 million. Are there kids to be set up for life? Not saying that's right either, guys. I'm just saying lying over 10 bucks. Before we start calling a spade a spade, we got to realize what we do. These people who complain and like, they lie about a lot of stuff too that's petty. They lie on their taxes. We better not go there. We better just stop right there. (laughs) 
But I know this seems obvious. That's the way it is, right? But from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this leadership trait's like not forgotten. In Titus 1, 6 through 9, Paul writes, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children, or believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and discipline. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. By the way, despite what you might hear out there, this is still the bar for pastors and spiritual leaders. I had somebody ask me a while back, you know, I was telling them, like, I, I see a lot of people in ministry today here in Marble Falls, you know, that they struggle, you know, they don't meet the bar. They've lowered the bar, you know, and lowered the standard. And they were like, well, what standard? Your standard? I'm like, no, I don't think I have to explain the Bible. The Bible's pretty clear about what the standard is. Now, you can manipulate that all you want. You know, the Pharisees did that all the time. Remember the stories of the Pharisees who decided you couldn't leave your home on, on uh, Sunday so they would take a bricks of their home and put them out there like another 20 feet outside their house? Well, technically, I'm not outside my house because those bricks are the outside of my house. And so, like, you see how we can work legalism? It's really easy to work legalism. I think people have done that with the scriptures, but make no mistake, they are the standard. I also think the Bible presents two ways to live. They, it presents one way of living in excellence, and it presents one way of living acceptable. You can live acceptable, but acceptable is like walking into heaven still smelling like smoke. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's people who thought they were Christians that are going to say, we were doing all these things in your name. Those are the people that are like going to have a rude awakening when they get to heaven. Those people went to church. Those people probably paid tithes. Those people thought they was doing good. The problem is they were selfish in the process. There was a whole lot of wickedness going on inside. Their outside works seemed good, but their inside works were not there. The last little nugget that Jethro gives Moses might just be the best one. Leaders understand that God's will is first, even if it means confounding human wisdom and logic. Look at verse 23. It's the caution tape to making changes with the body of Christ. He says, if you follow this advice, because it is good advice, and if God commands you to do so, hello, the clause in the contract, right? Then you'll be able to endure the pressures and all these people will go home in peace, right? All of this is good, right? But the main thing is still the main thing. If God commands you to do so, then you can do it, period, right? Sometimes I think we use our human intellect and, and we never even bother to see if God is what we're what we're doing. He's, he's even in it. We don't even ask God. We're like, I think I remember a guy talking one time about uh, planting churches, but the way he went about planting is not how you would normally plant. He had had a big church up in Pennsylvania. It was growing a really big church at the time. I think he had like six or 700. And, uh, and, and here's the thing is he was praying for a bigger parking lot. He's like, God, we need this parking lot. He goes, man, I was out there. We, we would have prayer walks and we would walk this parking lot like crazy. And, and there were other businesses nearby, but they looked like they were going out. This is what he said. He goes, there were other businesses nearby, but they looked like they were probably running out of business. So, like, we, we were aggressive. We were like, Lord, if they need to go, just push them out, God, so we can have this parking lot because I need more people. I'm never going to get to 1,000 people, God, if I can't. You know, we need 1,000 people because that's what's going to glorify you, God. And finally, God stopped him. And this is what I thought the great. This is why I remembered it. He goes, I forget his name. He goes, hey, when are you going to ask me what I want? And I always amazed that, see, somebody gets to 700 people in a church and they never even thought to ask what God wanted. I'm always amazed when I hear mega church guys have to apologize for building a church that God didn't even ask if he wanted it. They didn't even ask God. They just assumed God, right? 
I'm always amazed at that. But that's, that's why I remember the story. And you know what God said I wanted? He's like, listen, I don't want a big old church. I don't want you to have a church of a thousand. That's not what I want. I don't want you to run off all these businesses because you need a parking lot. That's not what I want. Half these people are driving 30 minutes across town to get to you. How about you take your youth pastor and go supplant him over there? And he goes, whoa, 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 God. Is that you? <laughs> but he ended up taking his youth pastor and implanting him in a place that they paid for. And when all this money they've been saving to build this parking lot and put him across the deal. And they're like seven churches later, and he's only running two or three hundred. But all these other churches are running two or three hundred, and they're thinking maybe that's just how we do it. Maybe it's not about how big we grow, or maybe it's not how much we add. It's more how much we can multiply. You know, we've said it a long time in here. If we get any bigger probably than here, why don't we just like go to the next? Why don't we just find another pastor who wants a small little church and help him supplant? We need more pastors. We need more leaders. We need people who are hungry for the move of God. We need people who are hungry to do something with God, to teach others, to train others, right? We need people like that. And there's a lot of them out there, man. They've been trained now for a long time not to come without a paycheck. And we're going to have to work through that. My generation and the generation before me are very guilty of teaching people that they need a paycheck to do ministry. And we'll work on that. But there are people who still love Jesus so much and are willing to do whatever he says and do whatever he says to accomplish the things that God's called them to do. And I'm a firm believer in that, right? Not all of it's logical, by the way. It's not logical, right? And I know the same statistics that if everybody tithe, you know, nobody be hungry. I know all those. But it, listen, the church is broken. She's always going to have struggle. She's always. But you know what she needs? She needs people who loves her and gives her grace. And is willing to walk with her just slow as it takes. Right? Sometimes what's logical is not necessarily godly wisdom. This is the weird part between wisdom and faith, right? You ever notice that? I mean, I was, uh, the more I was thinking about this, you know, about faith and wisdom and how this one confounds the other, right? I mean, obviously, we have the scripture from 1 Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to standards, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, and even things that are not to bring to nothing those that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, right? We know, we know this, right? But some of our greatest wisdom is just foolishness. Do you ever, would you ever have considered if water was bad and you needed it, we should throw a stick in it? That's going to work. No, but that's what worked, didn't it? Right? When they're thirsty again, if we break this rock right here with this stick, that's going to work. Nobody thinks like that. Man, I was a kid with the whole, you know, the, what do they call that? I don't even know what they call that with the, you got the like wishbone stick, you know, and you're looking for water. I'm not sure about that. Like, that's a weird deal. But like, there's some things that just confound your wisdom. I don't know why, I, I, don't, I don't understand how it works. By the way, like, I'm still trying to figure out, like, as a military guy who loves strategy, I've yet to like understand Jericho. If any of you've got this like explanation, like, well, they blew the trumpet so loud that the sound waves knocked the walls down. Have you, I've been to a lot of marching bands. And, I mean, as good as UT is and some of these college plays I've been to, you know, nuh-uh, I can't believe that. Uh, I'm not sure how trumpets play into that factor or how the seventh time around is the one that does it. Like, how, who made that up, right? But that worked. What about Gideon? How many of you decrease your army so that you can win a war? Nobody does. That's dumb. 
That's dumb. But did it work? Yeah. Sometimes faith requires us to do things that are not logical. Sometimes faith asks things from us. That's not wisdom. It's not wise to pick your whole family up, move to Marble Falls. How is that going to help me and, and everything I got? Is, you, know, you know what God knew in my heart? What I wanted more for my family than finances and stuff was relationships and the fact that we would have healthiness in our house. I wanted less drama. I wanted to, to go to a place where we could pour out love on a people and people who would pour out love on us back. I, I wanted what I saw in the Bible, the dream of the church to be, right? It's what I long for this place. It's the reason why I feel like such a tight, neat family here where we all love one another and we're more than just a church. We're family here. We're family here. We love each other. Man, I pray for you. I, I'm, I, I love you deeply and I, I pray that's what you feel about us. That's the, that's the glory. It doesn't make sense. Like, how are we going to, we're so small, how are we going to make big impacts? We will. Why? Because look at the Bible. The Bible loves the underdog. Jesus is the underdog. Gideon's the underdog. The Jews are the underdog. God loves the small. He's always with the small. He picked the smallest nation. He picks the smallest people. David was a runt. Good looking runt, though. Still a runt. God likes good looking people. <laughs> Praise everybody said amen on that one. <laughs> so much good in this chapter, right? Like I, I told Joy, I said, I feel like my spirit's just been waiting on this chapter to come and, and, and so good. All these little stuff wrapped up. So here's my takeaway, and, and I'll, I'll bring, we'll, we'll, we'll praise the Lord a little bit, and then we're going we're gonna to have a time of prayer. Uh, we have some things to pray about. Um, I think... When we struggle with wisdom, we struggle with those things. There's this, um, there's this thing where we we uh, we become aware of our own smallness. <laughs> like we're so smart, and we can be so successful, and yet we're around God, and God reminds us how small we are. And that's why I love the mountains. When I go out to the mountains, I tell you all the time, and I come back, and I feel so small out there. Like I'm, you know, here, I, you know, I'm a Marine and pastor, and I. You know, from Texas, which already makes you like awesome anyway. And then you go up, you go up into the mountains, and the mountains are like, uh, "Calm down, little man," and and you just feel this smallness. So it's really good, right? Real. So here's the takeaway: we all need Jethro's in our life. All right, we all need Jethro's in life. We need people, right? Mentors and spiritual leaders that help shape us and really bring out the best in us. You know, I've told y'all so many stories of mine. Whether it was from Pastor Henry Cutbirth, Joy's grandfather, who I showed, remember the picture of me in the little uh, Catholic collar? I mean, come on, dude. That's just bizarre. But he had a vision for what he believed God was calling me to be, and he kept pressing that on me, this vision of you're going to preach, and you're going to preach, and you're going to be this man of God. And I think that was his way of like impressing that on me. And then I had a man, uh, Merle Adams, uh, was a great man who would take time out of his day and have lunch with me at his house and, and was just so inviting in and just had tons of wisdom to pour out. He wasn't a pastor. He was just, he was the HR guy at a biscuit factory, but man, was he a man of God. He was just a powerful man of God, and you listened when he spoke, and, and everything about his life was healthy. He welcomed in the young people, even though he didn't like their music. He let them sing and dance all they wanted, you know, and, and, and just and tried to, he was like, listen, this is their time. This is their thing. It's time for my generation to take a step back. Yes, I love all the things that we went through, but this is the new generation, and they got to find their voice. He had such a healthiness to him that I hungered for that I, that I think helped me along the way. And then Pastor Stephen McKnight 
who originally I helped him youth pastor there, or uh, underneath him as a youth pastor in Terrell, and then now he's senior pastoring that church into its next, next place, and, and God's doing so much there, right? Uh, and then there's some that re- really, like, ne- they'll never know that, that I took, like Diana, she'll never know that I took that word from her and kept it, and then we'll talk about it today, right? Uh, but there's so many people that have just inputted into me, and, uh, and they never, there are a lot that never even knew they were doing it. They were just being a friend when I needed one sharing spiritual wisdom that they've learned as they came across similar experiences in life, right? Some were seasonal friends, right? Mentors and spiritual leaders. Some were long-term. You know, I went five, six years without seeing Stephen. When we went and saw up for the funeral for Pastor Ford was the first time I'd seen Stephen in six years, but we talked twice a month just about. There's some people I don't see at all hardly, but I talk to them all the time, and that's about all the time we get. And you know why? Because we're on mission. We're on mission. He's got to go save the people that God's called him to save, and I respect that, right? He's got it to the mission field. Like some of you, your mission field is where you work, and that's where your time is, and I got to respect that I'm not going to get all your time, right? Every church should really respect that. You're not going to get all your time. I don't need to consume you with all the time here at the church. I actually need you to be out in the actual field working. (laughs) Not, I mean, that's one of the reasons we don't have a ton of events here, because I need you in the field. Uh, hopefully by the time they get here, they're like really ready to be saved or, or already saved because you've been bringing them in from the outside, which is biblical, by the way, very biblical. Even when I was young, I remember being at boot camp, uh, you know, there were drill instructors that were so hard on us, but they were teaching us some very serious things that we were ignorantly unaware of, and uh, they were being tough on us for a reason, but I'll never forget when we graduated, um, Man, they became our greatest cheerleaders. Wasn't that weird? Yeah. I mean, when we, when we graduated, they went from like, they were terrifying, like horrifying, like, like bad dream kind of thing. And then like all of a sudden it was like once you graduate, it's like, hey, how's it going? Like, dude, mm-mm. like this is a trap. This is a trap or a trick, right? But then it, it really was like, hey, man, you're going to do fine and da, da, da. And, then, and like, where the tearing down began, like we had accomplished that which they had hoped that we would accomplish. They had really, like when you reflect back, you realize how much they carried you through a lot of it. And even though it seemed like at times they were working against you, they were really working for you, right? To help you get to where you wanted to be. They, they moved in from this drill instructor, this teacher, into this cheerleader, right? I want to say one of the things with that, leadership has its seasons. It has its seasons. Sometimes we're teachers, and we're preachers, and we're instructors. Sometimes in our lives, there's times we come alongside somebody, and we're there to help you learn or get to place. And then there's times in life where I'm just here to cheer you on. I'm just here to cheer you on. You don't need to hear me anymore. You already know what's right. I feel like there was a time when, you know, one of the, let me give you a little bit that's not on my, my notes, but this is a really good advice that I think that everybody should know, and, and maybe it'll help you with your frustration because it helped me with mine. And, and, it, and it was this, like, there comes a time where when your kids are little, they got to walk. There's not one of us here that ever walked without falling. Not a single one of us. Now, when your kids fail, you help them back up. And then how many times when they get to that point where you're like, well, get up, all right? Quit crying on the floor. Or you even did it with your foot. Get up. <laughs> I don't even going to bend down and acknowledge that anymore. Get up, right? And they get up on their own, right? And there comes that time where even, by the way, like there's that walk with all of us. There, there's that walk where we're so close with God in the beginning and everything is so new and so fresh. And God is talking, right? Because you're a child. 
You need instruction. You need preaching. You need teaching, right? But then there comes that time where you're supposed to know how to walk. I can't stand when people are like, I just don't get fed there. You should be feeding yourself. What's wrong with you? Dude, if we saw a grown adult who didn't know how to pick up a fork and spoon, don't tell me nobody would make fun of them. Come on. We'd expect them to be what? You have something mentally wrong with you. But in the church, we just accept that. That's not right. It's called palsy. And we allowed them to be that way because we kept feeding them. We're as guilty as they are for not. They didn't try and we didn't help. At some point, loving you is just going, is God going, no, I'm not going to talk to you and tell you the right way. I've shown you the right way. Walk in it. Walk in it. Make the decision. And you know what you're going to find out? That all things work together for good to them who love God. That it doesn't matter if it turns out to be the bad door I opened, right? I'll face those consequences and God will be with me. And if I took the good door and it was all a good decision, well, like, oh, that was the Lord's will. No, the Lord's will is that you would become the image of Jesus. And I don't know if you've recognized him, but he gets pretty beat up in the end. Now, eternity is waiting on the other side, but nobody's saying you're not going to get beat up. Look at the apostles. Look at everybody else that came after. Life is going to beat you up, guys. But God has given you everything you need to walk in it. Mm. Jethro modeled holiness and righteousness and leading others into the joy of the Lord. Not focusing on the complaining of the people, but on the faithfulness of God. Mm. He offered advice in a way that could be received and not mistaken as criticism. Powerful. I mean, that's a whole other teaching lessons, man. So it's more stuff. There's so much there. Uh, Moses, he reminded Moses that above his advice, this is the Lord's will. And he was rightly rewarded the title, in my opinion, the priest of Midian. Man, that's an awesome title. And he, he's earned it, right? Listen, church, we're going to be taking Jethro's advice this year. You're going to see different people take the pulpit because it can't just be about me. Right? Next week, matter of fact, it's Michael. Yes. It's also Joy's birthday. But we're not doing anything because I can't eat. That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> and different people are going to have to lead on Wednesdays because otherwise we'll go into 10 o'clock. So this is where having a wife helps you. Part of the message. It's not the Pastor Jim show. I promise you that everyone could use less of my mouth. Amen. God created this beautiful thing called the church with each person representing a different piece of the body. And each piece has a gifting and a voice. And we will be better for giving them a place and a platform to make the whole of the body better. Amen? Good, good stuff this week, guys. Good stuff, man. We have a lot to praise the Lord for. And, and I know we're about to get up and we're about to sing. And then I, I don't want us to, we, when we get to this last song, just give us a minute. Uh, Jared, you might actually play some music at the end just for us real quick because I have, uh, we're going to pray and lay hands here. Uh, yeah, and we'll just talk about that when we get there. Amen? Amen. Amen.